morning. Good morning, three people. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Good morning. My name is Norbert. Welcome to Point of Grace Church. And to those of us worshiping online, I'd like to give a shout out to you. Uh, welcome to. Uh, if you're here, uh, that means you adjusted your clock today uh, because it's the start of the DST. Some people get distracted with the DST. In fact, the state of Colorado is still having a is uh, trying to pass the bill so that they can eliminate this DST because this is really confusing. Uh, people get distracted with this DST. And speaking of distraction, yesterday I, I went to the mall with my daughter uh, because I was trying to distract her from going with her mom. Her mom and my son went to a party. So I was trying to distract my daughter. I brought her to the mall and I told her we're going to buy tutu for her. We're going to look for, you know, she wants to dress up. Uh, but I also have a hidden agenda because I wanted to buy something for myself. So the moment we stepped in the mall and I knew that I, I wanted to buy something very specific, um, I got distracted because there's so many things inside the mall that caught my attention. And I knew that the item that I was looking for was inside the mall, inside <laughs> the very back. But I got distracted in the process. Uh, at the end of, an, uh, of one hour, um, I wasn't able to buy it because I totally forgot about it. Uh, I was trying to distract my daughter, but I was the one who got distracted. I think in a world full of people and things that compete for our attention, it's easy to get distracted. Would you s agree to that? See, when you drive the billboards on the road, the social media on your phones, the countless invitations from your friends, coworkers, friends, classmates, we can easily get distracted from what we really need to be. And when we get distracted, we always forget three things. Number one, who we are, what we're supposed to do, and why we are supposed to do that. We easily get distracted. So I want to talk to you about today about the problem of distraction. The problem is distraction and the solution is to refocus. So for the whole month of March until the end of this month, we will talk about refocus. But today I want to talk to you about why we get distracted, the reasons why we get distracted in the first place. This is how it affects, these distractions are the ones that affect our walk with Jesus. Let's do a quick recap of what we talked about last week. If you were here last Sunday, we talked about the Israelites, they fought against the city of Ai and they won. But before they even won, God has to allow them to lose because someone by the name of Achan stole from God. God gave them one rule, but he was smart enough to say he's not going to follow it. He wanted to invest, so he stole something from God, and God was not happy, so they lost the battle of Ai. And as soon as Israel settled this sin of Achan, they were able to win against the city of Ai. And right after they won against the city of Ai, they did two things. Two things that in particular is our uh, topic for this morning. Number one, they built an altar to the Lord and they offered sacrifices of burnt offerings and peace offerings. That's what it did. The second thing they did was to read from the book of the law, the whole book of Deuteronomy, and make the people remember their covenant with God. So they did two things. Number one, they worshiped God. Second, they made the covenant with God by renewing their covenant with God. 
Let's read Joshua chapter 8, verses 30 and 31. If you have your Bibles, cell phones, iPads, whatever that you have there, or you can just look up the screen, it's there. Let's read together. It says, At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel. As it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings. Now, this passage is talking about the building of the altar. And there's a very specific thing about this altar. An altar of uncut stones. It must be holy to the Lord. That's what it's saying. Now, when these people who came out of Egypt they had just one mission, and their one mission is this, to worship the Lord. And so before they came out of Egypt, Moses was talking to Pharaoh, let God's people go so that they can go and worship God in the promised land that God promised them. There's one mission for the people of Israel to go out of Egypt and worship God. And here, chapter 8, verse 30 and 31, they're now worshiping God. But you know what happened in transition? It's 40 years before they even get to here. 40 years. Now, what happened there? What happened in between the 40 years? Now, to get to the promised land, the first thing they did was to get out of Egypt. And the moment they went out of Egypt, their first barrier was the Red Sea, the whole peninsula. Uh, at the edge of the peninsula was the Red Sea. So there, there was no problem going out of Egypt. There was a Passover, and they just walked hastily. But when they were at the edge of the peninsula in front of the Red Sea, they realized they have, number one, they have no boats to ferry to about two million people all the way to the wilderness. And second, they didn't have the power of Jesus to, talk, to walk on water. So for them, it's game over. I mean, it, the Egyptian army is going to catch up and enslave them again. So for them, they were so distracted by the Red Sea. See, here's the problem. Instead of focusing their eyes on the power of God, they focused their eyes on the problem of the Red Sea. That's a problem of people without faith. This is the problem of distraction. See, without boats and without the ability on water, for them, it's game over. So instead of thanking God or praying to God, they blamed Moses. They even told Moses, is there no, not enough graves in Egypt that you have brought us here to die? And so, so they kept on com complaining. The biggest distraction for them is not being able to see what God can do instead of, you know, the problem in front of them. What I'm saying is that distraction will always be a fact of life, even for us. But distraction, hear this, is a choice. Distraction is a choice. See, we get distracted because instead of focusing on the power of God, we tend to focus on the problem. And the story of Israel is a story of distraction. The 40 years in the desert is a story of distraction. See, why did I say that? Because after two years, so they crossed the Red Sea, they came to the wilderness. After two years, they decided we're now ready to enter the promised land. So what they did was they sent 12 spies in the land. After 40 days, the spies came back and they said, it's impossible to enter the promised land. Why? Because there were giants in the land. See, here's the thing. <coughs> In Egypt, before they even, before the Passover, they witnessed the power of God through the ten plagues. I mean, knots and frag, frogs, 
and you know, all those locusts and the pandemic in Egypt, they witnessed how powerful God is. In fact, they even witnessed how God split the sea so that they can cross one into another. And with the giants, they just simply forgot. They forgot that God is more powerful than the residents of Canaan, the giants. The spies said it's impossible for us to conquer the land because there are giants. What they did is that they forgot who God is. They forgot three things. They forgot who they are. They forgot what they're supposed to do. And they forgot why they're doing it. It's all related to the power of God. You see, this is the biggest distractions that they have. So because of that, God was so frustrated and God gave up. And so God said, you're going to stay there for 40 years. And so that's why we, when we read the Bible, we always look at them. In the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, they were in the desert for 40 years. Why? Because they got distracted. They, they were not able to get through with it. Here's the problem. Speaking of distraction, we just talked about the sin of Canaan. Achan, sorry. See, the sin is a major form of distraction. Uh, let's not forget that sin can either slow us down or can totally stop us from following God. And when we get distracted, again, not just like the Israelites, we also forget who we are, what we're supposed to do, and why we're doing it. And sometimes, losing is God's way of calling our attention back. See, in the case of the Israelites, they fought against Ai the first time and they lost because God wants to bring their attention back to him. It's not about their, what they can do. It's not about their ability to fight the enemy. It's about the power of God. It's about depending on the power of God. And God has to bring their attention back because there was sin inside the camp of Israel. Sometimes losing is God's way of calling our attention back. So I'm thinking maybe in our case, sometimes, not always, sometimes sickness, sometimes losing a job, sometimes even losing a loved one can call our attention back to God. Let us not forget that 36 men died when they fought against AI. See, sometimes this is possible because God wants to make a point, to make it crystal clear. He wants our attention back to him. Why? Because we are distracted. The people of Israel, after winning against the people of AI, must refocus. And the idea of reading the book of the law of Deuteronomy was for them to be able to refocus Refocus on God. They were distracted by the sin of Achan, but they must refocus. Verse 33, it says, And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite side of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of the Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that's written in the book of the law. You, you will find these blessings and curse if you try, start reading from Deuteronomy chapter 27 all the way to 34. It's all there. So what he's saying here is that Joshua read the whole book of Deuteronomy in front of the people. Now, I'd, I'd like you to imagine this. This is Mount Ebal. This is Mount Gerizim. They are in the middle of the two mountains. And because they are in the middle of the two mountains, when somebody speaks like in a coliseum, people can hear. You know, there's a sounding board. Both mountains became the sounding board. 
So people heard the book of the law, the reading of the book of the law by Joshua, including the blessings and the curses. But what this passage is saying is that the reading of the law is the way for Joshua to have the people refocus their attention on God, not on themselves, but on God. They must be reminded who they are, what they're supposed to do, and why they're supposed to do it. See, in the book in of uh, Exodus, the first time they encountered God, coming from Egypt, Again, Moses talked to Pharaoh and, and he said, let my people go so that they can worship God. Oh, there's only one mission for the people of Israel, to worship God. So in the foot of Mount Sinai, after two months, they crossed the Red Sea. They encountered God, and this is what God told them, Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, this is supposed to be their mission statement. The very thing that defines who they are, what they're supposed to do, and why they're doing it. Let's talk about treasured possession. What does it mean to become a treasured possession? In other words, when we say treasured possession, we mean chosen. The people of Israel were chosen. But why were they chosen? Is it because they're good? Is it because they're superior? Adolf Hitler in the 30s believed that the Germanic people were superior above all the peoples in the world. That's why he tried to eliminate all the Jews. This is wha not what the Bible is saying, treasure possession. They were chosen not because of who they are, but because of what God can do through them. That's the reason why they were chosen. They were chosen because there was a condition to that election. They were chosen for a purpose. God wants to use them for something. That's why they are treasured possession. And God has separated them from all the peoples of the world so that they can be sanctified for a purpose, for a mission, for a job. That's their treasured possession. They're supposed to be a kingdom of priests. Now, what is a kingdom of priests? What does priests do? Priests are go-between. If you want to go and worship God, you cannot just walk into the temple and say, okay, I'm here, I'm going to pray, I'm going to sacrifice. Uh, here's my sacrifice. No, you cannot do that. There's a protocol in worshiping God. And the priests are the one who guarantees that protocols will be obeyed. One of the things that they do is to make sure that sacrifices will pass the standard of God. It must be acceptable to God. You cannot just give God something that you want. You have to give God something that he wants. That's what the priests do. So they inspect your sacrifice, make sure your, your lamb or your goat or your bull is not sick your bull is up to certain standard because if your sacrifice is not acceptable to God, then he will not be delighted. That's what the priest does. And on the other hand, the priests also are the go-between between God and the people. If God wants to bless the people, he will not just bless them, he will bless the people through the priests. So when the people go to the temple to offer their sacrifices, it is also when the priests pray the prayer of blessing so that God will bless the people through the priests. In this instance, when God is saying that you will be a kingdom of priests, he's saying to all the people of Israel, this nation will become a kingdom of priests so that they will become a go-between from God to all the peoples of the earth. They're supposed to be priests of the whole world. That's what they're supposed to be. Problem is they were not able to fulfill this, this task. What about a holy nation? 
about Holy Nation, have you ever wondered why in the Bible there are so many do's and don'ts? Yes? Perhaps the, the biggest obstacle for other people who are non-Christians is when they read the Old Testament and they read, it's not good to eat pork. Oh my goodness, it's so yummy and you cannot eat it. Or you cannot eat, you know, blood. You know, Filipinas, they love to eat Betamax. See, there are so many prohibitions, the do's and the don'ts. See, that's, that's the idea of holiness. The idea of holiness is that they're supposed to be different from all the peoples of the earth. Their lives, their way of life should be different, totally different from all the peoples of the world. That means what they eat, what they wear, what they do, what they do for a living, all those things should be different from the rest of the world. They're supposed to be holy in a way that reflects the character of God. See, because God is holy, therefore they must to be holy. There was a recent incident, if you're watching the news, there was a recent incident at Wilton Manors. How many have, have read that, have heard about it? Cool. So there's Wilton Manors up north in Broward County. There were cadets from West Point that, uh, because of spring break, they came down and they rented a house and they apparently snorted cocaine laced with fentanyl. Uh, so they got overdosed, they went to the hospital, and the West Point administration is talking about this case. See, cadets in West Point have an honor code. And the honor code I is very interesting. The honor code says that a cadet must not lie, cheat, steal, or tolerate those who do. And I'm very sure when they get back there, it's going to be the hardest way to learn what best honor code means. Um, I didn't tell you, but during my seminary days, I entered a very, very strict seminary. Uh, saying that it's conservative is an understatement because every beginning of semester, we are required to sign a sort of honor code. Um, every semester, we are s supposed to agree to sign that we will not watch a movie, that we will not drink, that we will not smoke, we will not do drugs or dance, and the worst, we cannot enter into a relationship until junior year. <coughs> that's right. That's right. It's very strict, <laughs> very conservative. But, you know, we're normally rebellious, so every summer we watch movies. <laughs> but that's the whole idea of reading from the book of the law in Joshua chapter 8. It's for them to refocus their, their eyes on God, their mission, who they are, what they're supposed to do, and why they're doing it. Now, again, in between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, there was the altar of the Lord. Fast forward to the time of Jesus. This is where it gets interesting. Fast forward to the time of Jesus. Jesus was traveling in Galilee at the ex exact place in between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. There was a town by the name of Zikar. And in Zikar town, there was a well it's a Jacob's well. Apparently, in the time of Jacob, he dug the well, and it was named after him, Jacob's well. And Jesus was traveling to Galilee in the town of Sychar, and he stopped by the well. He stopped by the well, and what's interesting here is that there was a Samaritan woman by the well. And, and what's interesting here is that the Samaritan woman was fetching water in the middle of the day. You probably know this story. Oh, so 
question is why is she fetching water at during midday when the sun is strikingly hot? And Jesus was there because he was also tired. And he had a conversation with this woman. And the conversation goes like this. Jesus said, give me water. The woman said, we're not supposed to talk because I'm Samaritan. Jesus said, if you knew me, you would have asked for living water. The woman said, where is it? Jesus said, I'm the living water. The woman said, no, give it to me. Jesus said, call your husband. What's this? Call your husband. See, Samaritans, they do not talk to the Jews because the Jews see them as second-class citizens. So the Samaritans, they built their own temple in Mount Gerizim. They don't go to Jerusalem. They built their own temple in Mount Gerizim. They're not supposed to talk, but this Samaritan woman is so confused that Jesus, the Jew, would talk to her. But then when she was asking for the living water, Jesus said, call your husband. The question is, how is this husband related to this living water? So the woman said, I don't have a husband. Jesus said, you're correct. You don't have a husband. You had five men. None of them were your husbands, and the one especially you're with now is not your husband. Now, what in the world is happening here? In the time of Jesus, divorce has been rampant. And any man, any husband, who finds displeasure in his wife can easily kick out his wife out of the house. And the moment he does that, the wife, who doesn't have any professional skill, will become an instant beggar and homeless. So if this woman is smart and he wants, she wants to survive, what she can do is to immediately find someone who needed company who can ac accommodate her, specifically, preferably someone with a house and food to eat. And this woman has been doing that five times over. See, she doesn't become a wife by keeping company. She becomes a long-term prostitute because she doesn't go through the marriage. That's what Jesus is saying. None of them were your husbands. Go call your husband. I don't have a husband. I, that's correct. None of them were your husbands. See, this woman was distracted. This woman was distracted from who she is, what she's supposed to do, and why she's supposed to do it. I cannot blame her. She's trying to survive. I think in a world of survival just like what we have right now, or we are in right now at least, we easily get distracted too. To the point that we're not enjoying life or only surviving life. See, a life of a drug addict is a life of quick fix and survival. Our former church used to accommodate the Alcoholic Anonymous, and they would always uh, go there every Friday, Tuesday, and Monday, and they would talk about, talk about their uh, struggles in life. Life of a drug addict is about survival and quick fix. And, and, and a drug addict would do anything just to get that high. He's, he's not concerned about mortgage or car payments or future plans or retirement. He's just concerned about that quick fix, that high. I'm looking at, I'm looking at us. I'm looking at in the same way, we're also trying to find the quick fix. We're trying to survive. You see, this woman was trying to find satisfaction by going to the well because she's thirsty in the midday. All of us, metaphorically, could, I could also say that we are also trying to find our satisfaction and happiness somewhere else. Some people find happiness and satisfaction in sex, drugs, friends, shoppings, vacations. And yes, face 
Facebook likes. Correct? It's like Facebook like. After one hour, you check again how many likes. Why? Because you want to find satisfaction there. You find satisfaction there. See, but the problem is real happiness can only come from God. You don't really find happiness on those things. Those things are temporary. What Jesus is offering to the woman was a water that is living, living water that never runs out, living water that when you drink, you will never be thirsty again. That's what Jesus said. If you drink this living water, you will never be thirsty again. That's why the woman was very interested. Give me this water so that I don't have to fetch every day for water. What's more odd to me, though, and even more confusing, was when Jesus, who claimed to be the living water, no, this is, this is what's more interesting and more interesting in this sermon. So if you're, if you're sleeping, this is time to wake up. All right, what is more odd? is when Jesus, who claimed to be the living water, on the cross, he said, I thirst. Have you realized what he said? On the cross, he said, I thirst. Why would he say that? Why would he, offering that living water to the woman, said, I thirst? It got me confused the, the moment I tried to study this. And it should confuse you as well. He said, I thirst. What does he mean? Does he mean literally, I thirst? Now, if he meant literally, I thirst, it doesn't make sense. Why? Because you see, from Pilate's uh, residence all the way to Golgotha, he was carrying a, a beam of cross, and then he was helped by someone, Simon Cyrene. And then we, when he got to the place of Golgotha, he was offered a wine mixed with myrrh. You know the story. See, myrrh, is a drug so that the pain is less. But Jesus refused this wine mixed with myrrh because he wants to experience the full range of pain with this suffering. So he, he's, he's, he's focused. He knows what he wants. He knows his mission. He knows who he is, what he's supposed to do, and why he's doing it. He refused this. But why would he... At the very last, before he said he's finished, he said, I thirst. Now, it's very interesting to think about this one. There must be something else, some reason why he said, I thirst. Let me rewind a little bit. The night before he was arrested, he gave out, celebrated the last Passover. And when he broke the bread, he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He was celebrating, you know, what will happen the following day, his crucifixion. So when he raised the cup, he's saying, this is my blood. In his mind, it was very clear what will happen to him. It is very clear. He will die on the cross. He was celebrating the Passover. So to say that Jesus is distracted is, is not really true. Because he knew what will happen to him by celebrating that Passover. But the next thing that happened is that after Passover, he and his disciples went to a outside the city in a garden called Gethsemane. And he prayed. Why did he pray? Because at that time, he was disturbed. He was distracted. For the first time ever, Jesus, too, was distracted. See, he knew his mission. His mission, final mission, is to die on the cross, to pay for the sins of the world so that he can atone the sins of the world. But then in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed. And this was so intense that the Bible said that his sweat became like drops of blood 
falling on the ground. And what was his prayer all about? His prayer was about the cup. This is very interesting because Matthew, Mark, and Luke had different takes on this. Luke said the prayer of Jesus was an appeal to God's willingness, to God's benevolence, to God's, God's kindness, the heart of the Father. This is what Luke said in 22 verse 42. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. He was appealing to God's willingness. But Mark presents Jesus differently. Mark presents the prayer of Jesus as an appeal to God's ability, not willingness, but ability. So he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Th this is very interesting because there's a philosopher 300 years before Jesus by the name of Epicurus. Epicurus was struggling also with the idea of God and God's goodness and the idea of evil. So this is what Epicurus said. If God is willing to prevent evil but not able, then he is not omnipotent. If he is able but not willing, then he is malevolent. If he is both able and willing, then where does evil come from? If he is neither able nor willing, then why call him God? He made a point, very clear. So Matthew came with a different take on this. He presented the prayer of Jesus in terms of possibility, not in terms of willingness or ability, but in terms of possibility. So this is what Matthew said as the prayer of Jesus. He said, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. What Matthew presents is the appeal of God for the father to change his plans. Is it possible for me to obey you without going through the cup, without drinking this cup? See, whatever that is inside the cup is terrifying to Jesus Christ. That's why to the point that he was bargaining, was negotiating with the father. Is it possible for me to obey you without drinking from this cup? H here's the problem. See, Jesus was never afraid. Jesus was never afraid. But at this point, he was terrified. So his prayer is that anything but the cup. Anything but the cup. He will follow God. Anything but the cup. Can I please not drink this cup? Because this cup is terrifying. Jesus was never afraid up until this time. You remember in Matthew chapter uh, 8, he was on a boat with his disciples and there was a storm in the middle of the sea. And you know, Jesus was sleeping and his disciples were so afraid. They were so afraid that they woke up Jesus and said, don't you care? We are about to die. And Jesus relaxedly, you know, he stood up and said, chill. I said, peace. Okay, I'm translating. Chill, peace. I mean, he was not afraid. One time, he also walked on water in the middle of the night. He was not afraid. He casted out countless demons. He was not afraid. Now, we are afraid of the dark. I understand that. But Jesus talked to demons, and he was not afraid. He commanded demons to get out. There was, in fact, this one person in Gadarene. He said, what's your name? And this person said, I am Legion because I am many. Oh, Jesus was not afraid. He said, go. <laughs> I mean, but at this point, Jesus was afraid. Why? Because this cup is terrifying. So he's praying, but this cup, not this cup. I wonder how many of us have come across a tragedy. Some tragedies are very terrifying. I don't know about you, but a loss of a job for someone during the pandemic is terrifying. 
A breakup is also terrifying. A failed marriage can be terrifying. Children who lost their way can also be terrifying. In fact, even the loss of a loved one is terrifying. What do you do in this time of grief? What you do is to go to the garden and pray like Jesus. What we do naturally is to pray, but the cup. Have you ever tried to pray and negotiate it with God? Have you ever tried in that moment when you're saying, God, please no. Lord, don't you love me? Can you please take this away from me? Or sometimes we appeal to this ability. Lord, I know you're powerful. You can do this. This is so simple for you. Nothing is impossible for you. Can you please do this for me? And there was no answer. And then you would barter with God and negotiate with God and probably say, Father, can you please change your plans? I can't bear this. I know I have to go through this, but I cannot do it right now. Can you please, please change it? And see, one way or another, we try to negotiate with God. And just like Jesus, we're afraid of the cup. But in all these accounts, let us not forget, at the end of this prayer, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus ended up with saying, not my will, but yours be done. He's, he was distracted by the terrifying suffering, death on the cross. But he said, not my will, but yours be done. He was praying not to change the mind of God. He was praying because he was trying to bear his soul to God. And this is the reason why Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, it is the prayer of ultimate submission to God's will. It's not but the cup, it's even the cup. This is why Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane, not trying to change the mind of God, but just simply saying what's in her, his heart. See, to, to pray this prayer is to pray like Jesus. Not the cup, but even the cup. The cup in Christianity is not an exception to the rule. You see, if you want to be a Christ follower in the first century, in the time of Emperor Nero and Emperor Domitian, you're like signing your death warrant. Because the moment you profess to be Christian in the first century, you are a candidate to be arrested and to be thrown in the Colosseum to be eaten by lions. This is what is meant to follow Jesus in the first century. And that's why Jesus said, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. That is the cost of following Jesus, even the cup. If Jesus already resolved this dilemma in the garden, why in the cross would he say, I thirst? So he's not really thirsty physically because he can bear it. He's ready for the suffering. But after about six hours, after about all the mockery and ridicule and shaming, after all this, this is what John said in John chapter 19. After this, Jesus, knowing all was now finished, said, and then this parenthesis, to fulfill the scripture, he said, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there. They put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held to its mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And then he bowed his and he gave up his spirit. I want to talk to you about the parenthesis. After knowing that everything is finished, after knowing that everything has been done, all to fulfill the scripture, he said, I thirst. As if 
what's happening is a script as if he's trying to relive a script to fulfill the scripture he said I thirst I'm going to show you something very interesting here he, the first time he was offered was wine with mirror he refused it the second time when he said I thirst the soldiers gave him a sour wine the sour wine is the cheap stuff it's not the vintage kind it's a very cheap wine it's sour in fact but they offered it to Jesus and just received it. That's what he said. But there's parenthesis that says to fulfill the scripture. He was, he was receiving the sour wine, not because he was thirsty, but because he must fulfill what the scripture is saying. Let me show you something that's really interesting here. In the Sermon of the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, this is what Jesus said. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst righteousness for they shall be satisfied in verse 10 he said blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven see the thirst of Jesus has nothing to do with his physical thirst the thirst of Jesus has something to do with the righteousness fulfilling what God has intended him to do and this is what he said in verse 17 do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. He said, I thirst because he wants to fulfill what is said in the scriptures. What God the Father has tasked him to do. His thirst. I'm gonna, I want to bring you back to the garden. In the garden, he was refusing the cup. Because he knew whatever that is in the cup is terrifying. See, if this is a 400 meter run from the Pilate's residence all the way to Golgotha. This is his last 100 meters. This final hour is Jesus' last 100 meters. And his eyes are on the prize. He meant to finish the race. And no amount of pain, no amount of shame or ridicule or thirst could stop him. He's meant to finish the race. And so remember his prayer in the garden. He said, please not this cup. But then after this, he said, not my will but yours be done. So when he said, I thirst, he was meaning that cup in the garden. He wants to finish that. He wants to drink all that cup of suffering all the way down to the last drop because he meant to really obey the will of the Father. Not my will, but yours be done. See, the scriptures said that he was offered sour wine as the his branch. A hyssop branch was the one that the Jews used in the Passover in Egypt. That means whatever that's happening in the cross is related to the Passover in Egypt. In fact, the Bible said also that Jesus was the Lamb of God. It's the Passover all over again, but this is the ultimate Passover in the cross. See, Jesus wasn't distracted after all. He was meant to finish it. In fact, the last statement he said, it's finished. Here's one cool thing. Genesis starts with the phrase, in the beginning. Are you with me? Genesis chapter 2, after the six days of creation, God said, it's finished. And God rested. The book of John starts with the phrase, in the beginning. The last statement of Jesus said, it is finished. What's happening here? God, Jesus, is recreating everything. 
In fact, Paul said in Colossians that Jesus is the first fruits of creation. Isn't it what Paul said that we are the new creation of Jesus? We're the new creation of God. See, this is just simply a creation thing. Jesus did what the Father has, has commanded him to do, to create something new. And he said it's finished. Now, what's interesting here is that on the cross, bread of life, the one who raised Lazarus from the dead, the one who said, I am the resurrection of the life, the one who offered the woman this living water, when he said it's finished, his lifeless body was hanging on the cross. So I'm thinking, how many of us can honestly say he's distracted? How many can say honestly he's distracted? I don't know if my priority is right. And I confess, sometimes I get distracted. I forget about my calling. I forgot what I'm supposed to do as a Christian. I forgot that my priority is the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. And I always get to that last point where I am so preoccupied with you know, everything that I need. Instead of focusing on the kingdom of God and his righteousness, how many can say that? See, this is the portion where I'm going to tell you if you are distracted, if you say that you're distracted, Jesus is calling you from the garden and he wants you to pray. And I get to stand up and I get to sing this song with us. Sing this song like this is your prayer. Sing this song like Jesus is inviting you to the garden to pray. If you're distracted, this is your time. And in this prayer and in this song, while your eyes are closed, I'd like you to hear Jesus calling from the garden. He's calling from the garden saying, Are you hurting and broken within? Overwhelmed by the weight of your sin? Jesus is calling. Have you come to the end of yourself? Do you thirst for a drink from the well? Jesus is calling. Oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was brought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Leave behind your regrets and mistakes. Come today, there's no reason to wait. Jesus is calling. Bring your sorrows. Bring your sorrows and trade them for joy. From the ashes a new life is born. Jesus is calling. Oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was born with the precious blood of
Oh, come to 